theyeshiva.net. So today's class is dedicated by Mrs. by Rebetzin Chana Sharfstein in loving memory of her beloved father, Harav Agon, Reb Yaakov Yisrael, Reb Menachem Mendel Zuber. Rav Zuber, Rabbi Zuber, Hashem Yinkim Dame, may God avenge his blood, was the chief rabbi of the Orthodox community in Stockholm in Sweden. Then he relocated to the United States of America and moved to Boston. And on New Year's, New Year's Day, 1953, which was Yud Dalat the 14th of Tevis, he was murdered at the young age of 55. And his daughter <coughs> dedicates this class in his eternal memory. May he serve as an eternal source of of light and inspiration and Torah and Yerushalayim to his whole family and to all of us and to all of the Jewish people. And thank you so much for the dedication. It's also dedicated to Mrs. Sharfstein, Mrs. Chana Sharfstein, in honor of her 90th birthday. A great milestone, Baruch Hashem, one day before the Yartzen of her father, Yud Gimel Tevis, on the 13th of Tevis. In fact, as she once told me, he took her to her birthday party in Boston, that's where they lived, and then when he was going home through a park, he was attacked and killed. So her birthday is one day before her father's yard site. Mrs. Sharfstein has been, a, uh, for many, many years, a uh, participant and pillar of our classes <laughs> back in New York, and now virtually with her uh, unending... Uh, a participation and contribution and sharing ideas, insights, feedback, feelings, and very encouraging words. So thank you very much for being such an extraordinary participant and viewer and listener and disciple and friend. This past Shabbos, the entire family came here to Muncie to celebrate right near my house, actually. So it was a really beautiful Shabbos to see the beautiful family you created over these last nine decades, and we wish you today, Arichis Yomim V'Shanam Tevis, many, many, many long, happy, healthy, prosperous years filled with abundance of health and nachas, bracha, and atzlacha. And thank you so, so very much. And Mazel Tov, happy birthday, congratulations. Today's class is also dedicated by our very, very dear friends and neighbors from the neighborhood, Dr. Michael and Liz Michelle, in loving memory of Liz's father, Rev Yisrael Yitzchak Halevi, Ben Harav Reb Binyamin, Rabbi Irving Levy. He passed away 22 years ago on the 11th day of Tevis. Rabbi Levy was a very well-known Talmud Chachem, a respected Torah scholar, a legendary Balchesed pillar of kindness, and one of the earliest founders of the Muncie community who really helped build the Jewish infrastructure of Torah and Yiddishkeit here in Muncie, including founding the school Ashar and being a unique source of help for individuals and communities over many decades. Thank you so much for your friendship, for your for your partnership, for your love, for your dedication. And may Rabbi Levi, <laughs> Rabbi Yisrael Yitzchak, serve as an eternal source of light and inspiration and love to you, to the entire family, to all of us, and to all of the Jewish people. Thank you again very, very much. Today is the 10th day of the month of Tevis. Asar B'Tevis. It's one of the four fast days that has been established by the prophets and recorded in the Tanakh. 
in which we mourn and grieve for devastating events in Jewish history. Each year, we have four different fast days that commemorate the events surrounding our national exile. And here they go, and I'm doing it in the order from the beginning of the year, from the month of Nisan. The first one is known as Shiva Asa Tammuz. It's the 17th day of the Hebrew month of Tammuz. That's when the Babylonians broke through the walls of Jerusalem in order to capture and destroy the city. The walls of Jerusalem were breached. The first temple and the second temple, one by the Babylonians, the second one by the Romans. Then comes the second fast three weeks later. The period is known as the three weeks. This is the fastest Tishabov. Tishabov means the ninth day of Av. That's the day when both the first holy temple and the second holy temple were burned down and destroyed. The first one by the Babylonians, the second one by the Romans. The first one in the year in the Jewish calendar, 3338, 3338, Gimel Shilach. And the second one, Gimel Alafim, Atov Chavches, 3000, five, um, sorry, 3000, uh, Tov Tov Chav Ches, 3,828. So 3,338 and 3,828. In the English calendar, the first destruction is usually associated with 586 BCE and the second one with 68 after the Common Era. So this happens on the ninth day of Av. The third fast comes right after Rosh Hashanah. The third day of Tishrei, it's known as Tzom Gedalia, the fast of Gedalia. It's the day when the last hope for the sovereignty of Israel, the sovereignty of the Jewish people in the Holy Land after the destruction, was destroyed, violently destroyed, as we will see. This was after the destruction of the Temple. There was still a glimmer of hope, and that glimmer of hope was also extinguished. Finally, we have the fourth fast day, which is today, the 10th of Tevis. This is the fast day that commemorates the day when the Babylonian army surrounded late siege on the walls of Jerusalem. The army surrounded the walls of Jerusalem and they waited there for two and a half years. They also built towers, as we will soon see from the Tanakh. They built towers around and around. But it took two and a half years until they managed to penetrate the walls, to breach the walls, which, as we learned, was in the month of Tammuz. Now, <laughs> let's think about these four fast days. The first fast day is they breached the walls and they entered into Jerusalem. Three weeks later, they burned down the temple. They destroy all of Jerusalem. A few months later, Tzam Gedalia, that's when Gedalia, the leader of the Jewish people, after the destruction is murdered, and this community of the Jewish people living in the Holy Land comes to an end. Everybody has to escape. We're going to get into the details soon. Each one of these is really a standalone catastrophe. You're dealing with conquest, destruction, exile, the downfall of a kingdom. Each one of them was a serious catastrophe in the Jewish world. <laughs> it changed Jewish history. What I want to focus on is this fast, Asari Batavis, the 10th of Tevis. What happened on this day? Actually, there was no invasion. They didn't shoot any arrows. They didn't take any captives. They didn't murder any Jews. What they did was, they came and they set up camp. Now, <coughs> it took two and a half years until they managed to breach the wall. But at this point, nothing happened. They just surrounded this Jerusalem. They built towers around, and yet it was established as a fast day. Even though there was no destruction, no tangible destruction that happened yet, it was the beginning. Why was this established as a fast day? <coughs> it would seem less significant, even though it's an important day. 
but it would seem less significant than the other three dates, the other three fast days when actual destruction took place, death, murder, decimation, extermination. What is more, not only is it a fast day, but as we view how the prophet Yecheskel describes this day, it emerges that it actually has a unique element of pain to it. There's a unique component to it that in a way is more powerful even than the three other fast days. And let's see this inside because the text here will be extremely valuable. So I'm going to ask you to open your uh, source sheets. Those of you who are on Zoom, I put it in the link in the chat so you can open it up. Those of you who are on YouTube or on theyeshiva.net, if you go to theyeshiva.net and you'll see this class has source sheets. We're going to the prophet Yecheskel. Who was Yecheskel? Ezekiel Yecheskel was a prophet who lived at the end of the era of the first temple. In fact, he relocated, he was exiled to Babylonia. And during these events of the destruction of Jerusalem, he was not living in the Holy Land. He was already living in Babylonia from a previous exile, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian emperor, exiled some Jews 11 years earlier. But in Babylonia, which is present-day Iraq, Ezekiel, Yechezkel, had a prophecy on this day. When these events happened in Jerusalem on the 10th of Tavis, Ezekiel, living in Iraq, has a prophecy, and he records it. It's chapter 24 of the book of Yechezkel. In the ninth year, the ninth year of what? The ninth year since the reign of the final Jewish monarch in Judea, Tzitkiyahu. The last king from the dynasty of King David that would reign over the Jewish people, over Israel. At the end of the era of the first temple, his name is Sitkiyoh. He would ultimately be blinded by the Babylonian king and exiled to Babylonia. His children would be slaughtered in front of him. <coughs> in the ninth year of the reign of Sitkiyoh, on the tenth day of the tenth month, what's the tenth month? If you begin counting the months from the month when the Jewish people left Egypt, as the Torah says in Exodus, Parshas Boy that that becomes the first month, the month of our emancipation, the month when we became a people. So the month of Tevis is the 10th month, right? Nisan, Iyer, Sivan, Tammuz, Av, Elul, Tishri, Cheshvan, Kislev. Tevis is the 10th month. So Ezekiel Yecheskel writes, on the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month, I have a prophecy. God speaks to me. What does God say? Let's see. Ben Adam, O mortal human being, Ksav lecha es sheim hayoyim es etzem hayoyim Record this date, this exact day. First he says, record this day, the name of this day. I want you to record it. Then he says, This very day, this exact day. Because on this very exact day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem. Wow. This is an expression that we don't have with any other fast day. The fasts are all recorded in the Tanakh. The, prophet, the prophets have instituted these four fast days. But here, there's a special prophecy where God tells Yechezkel on this day, you're going to have to record this day. And he uses the word twice, etzem hayoyim which means this very exact day. This means that Hashem is telling Ezekiel that there's something unique about this day that has to be recorded. 
In fact, it has a fascinating ramification in Jewish law. Go to the next source. Avudraham. <coughs> Says Davudraham. Who was Davudraham? <coughs> Davudraham lived approximately in the year 1340. He was one of the great sages of Spanish Jewry. Rabbeinu David Avudraham. He's most known for a commentary he wrote on the Siddur, the prayer book, because he laments that most Jews don't know the meaning of the prayers and the reasons behind most of the customs associated with the prayers. So he took it and he made it his goal to write a commentary on davening. And it's known as the Avudraham's commentary on davening. Here is what he writes in his section on fast days. And I quote, Rabbi Nudavid Avudraham, 14th century Spain. All the four fast days, the four fast days, will be postponed if they will conflict with Shabbos. For example, if the ninth day of Av falls out on Shabbos, we don't fast on Shabbos. We push it off. <coughs> the tenth day of Tevis, this fast day will never fall out on Shabbos. According to our calendar, the tenth of Tevis will never coincide with Shabbos. But sometimes the tenth of Tevis can happen on Friday, fall out on Friday, and then you fast even though it's Friday. But I want you to know, even if theoretically the 10th of Tevis would have fallen out on Shabbos, you would not be able to postpone the fast of Nisham. Because the prophet Yecheskel in the beginning of chapter 24 says that Hashem said, record this this very exact day. It's exactly the same language that's used for Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is the one fast day that overrides Shabbos. Because Yom Kippur is the original fast day, a biblical fast day that comes from the time of Moses, from the time of the Torah. It's not like these four fast days that were added later at the end of the first temple era with the destruction. Yom Kippur is the original holiday and the Torah says about Yom Kippur, you have to fast on this very day so our sages learn out from this. There's no pushing it off. There's no supplementing the fast day, compensating for the fast day on a Sunday. On another day. No, but this very day you have to fast on. So the Avudraham says, theoretically, if our calendar would allow the 10th of Tevis to fall out on Shabbos, we would fast even on Shabbos. Because, here too it says, God says, record this very day as a day of catastrophe. There's no pushing off. There's no, even Tishabov doesn't have this. So this means there's something about the 10th of Tevis when apparently nothing dramatic happened outside of the Babylon king laying siege, but he didn't invade, he didn't destroy, he didn't murder, he didn't shoot arrows, he didn't take anybody captive, he didn't make it to the temple, he didn't even make it into the city. And yet, this fast is compared to Yom Kippur in the stringency, in the sense that it's so stringent that it would have overrided Shabbos. In fact, the Beis Yosef, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the 16th century great codifier, a writer of the Shulchan Aruch, quotes this Avudraham in the Laws of Fasts, he questions him. He says, and I don't know where he got this from. He finds that this is such a novel idea that, um, that Asara Batevis, the 10th of Tevis, the fast in a way is more stringent even than Tishabov. It's a Kintiyim Kippur. And the truth is, Davudraham says, if, if our calendar would allow it, it also has practical relevance because there was a, there was a significant time in Jewish history when they used to sanctify the new month, not based on the calendar, but based on the new moon. This, this, this continued for a few hundred years after the destruction of the second temple. So the fast day has already been established. 
According to the Vodraham, it would mean that they fasted on Shabbos. That's fascinating. In the 5th, 6th century, that's when a man named Rabbi Hillel established the calendar, and the calendar is fixed. So we know in advance when Yom Kippur is going to be, when the 10th day of Tevis is. We know it's not going to be on Shabbos. The 10th day of Tevis won't be on Shabbos. Yom Kippur could sometimes be on Shabbos. But before the calendar was established, for the first half of Jewish history, the way the new month was established was not based on a calendar. It was established afresh, anew, every single month. There were two witnesses who had to observe the birth of the new moon. We gave quite a few classes on this, how it worked. It was a fascinating procedure, and they came to testify. And the court would then establish Rosh Chodesh. According to that, the 10th of Tevis could fall out on Shabbos. It could fall out on Shabbos. And according to the Rambam, I'm not going to get into this. According to the Rambam, it's possible that the supreme Jewish court of Sanhedrin will be established even before Mashiach's coming. And therefore, then again, they're going to renew the establishment of the new month based on witnesses, not on the calendar. So again, this Avodraham may be very relevant. But what do we see from here? The bottom line is there's something fascinating. Avodraham says this is the only fast that is comparable to Yom Kippur. To understand this, I want to learn with you the story itself. The story of what happened on the 10th day of Tevis and the reason it was established as a fast day is recorded in two other places in Tanakh. It's recorded in Ezekiel, Yecheskel. It's also recorded in the book of Kings, Kings 2, chapter 25, where the chronology and the history of the waning days of the second of the first temple are recorded by the book of Malachim based Kings 2, chapter 25. And finally, it's recorded in the last chapter of Jeremiah. Yirmiyoh, Perik Nun Beis. Yirmiyoh, chapter 52. There again, the chronology of events is recorded. Let's see it in Malachim Beis, Perik Chafei. Malachim 2, chapter 25. Kings 2, chapter 25. Let's see inside. Says the Tanakh. Vayhi bashana hatshiyis l'molchoi. It was on the ninth year of the reign of Tzitkiyo. Remember, he's the last king. It's the not, it's the tenth, it's the tenth month, the tenth day of the month. As we learned, it's the tenth of Tevis. Translation, and you have here, we did the translation in the source sheets. It's the ninth year of his reign. On the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar moves against Jerusalem with his, whole, with his whole army, and he besieges it. He dwells near it, and they build towers against it all around. The city continues to be in a state of siege until the eleventh year of King Tzitkiyo. This means the siege continues from the tenth of Tevis in the ninth year for another two years, but not just another two years, another two and a half years. Because Betisha Lachaydish, next verse, it's only on the ninth of on the ninth day of the fourth month, which is Tammuz, the famine has become so acute in the city, there was no food left for the common people. After two and a half years of starvation, nobody has food anymore because the Babylonians are not letting anybody go in and not letting anybody go out. So this siege actually actually caused a devastating famine. And what happens? So finally, the walls of the city are breached after two and a half years on the ninth day of Tammuz. Now we fast on the 17th day of Tammuz. And the Talmud discussed it, was there a difference between the first temple breaching of the wall, the second temple breaching of the wall? Was was the ninth day of Tammuz recorded because people were so... One opinion of the Talmud is, 
the heartache was so powerful. People were so confused that they got their dates wrong. So it says the ninth of the month, even though it was really the 17th of the month. That's a whole discussion. It's for another class. We once gave a Tish above lesson on it. What happened here with the confusion of the dates? The ninth, the 17th. And then the Tanakh continues, Kings 2.25. On the fifth month, what's the fifth month? Of, right? Nisan, Iyer, Sivan, Tammuz, Menachem, Of. On the seventh day of the month. This is the 19th year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the chief butcher, the chief of the guards, an officer of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. On the seventh day of the month of Av, Nebuchadnezzar, one of the chief commanders and generals of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, enters into Jerusalem. The wall was breached a few weeks ago. The wall was breached almost three weeks ago on the 9th of Tammuz. But now he comes in. Vayisroif, es beis adenoi, es beis amelech, es kol bati Yerushalayim, es kol beis gadol sarav beish. Nuvuzradon burns down the house of Hashem. He burns down the king's palace. He burns down all of the houses of Jerusalem. He burns down the house of every notable person in Jerusalem. The entire force of Kazdim, of the Chaldean force that was with the chief of the guard, tore down the walls of Jerusalem on every side. Around and around the walls of Jerusalem were, were torn down. We already have a record here of why we fast three days, right? We started with the 10th of Tevis, the siege. We continued with the breaching of the walls in Tammuz. We continued with the burning of the temple and many other homes in Jerusalem and tearing down the walls on in the, in the fifth month, the month of Av. There's one last story. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon put a Jew, Gedalia, the son of Achikam, the son of Shaphan, in charge of the people whom he left in the land of Judah. Which means, yes, so many Jews were slain. The temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. Thousands and thousands of Jews were exiled to Babylonia. But the king of Babylon allowed a community to remain in Judah. In the land of Yehuda and Eretz Yisrael, he allowed remnants of the Jewish people to remain and continue living there and he appointed a leader and the leader was somebody he trusted his name was Gedaliahu Gedaliah the son of Achikam the son of Shaphan comes the seventh month that's the month of Tishrei from Nisan in the seventh month Yishmol the son of Netanya, the son of Elishama, who was from the royal descent of the Jewish people, he comes with ten men and they murder Gedaliah. They strike him down and he dies. They also killed the other Jews that were there. And they also killed the Babylonians that were present with him at Mitzpah. They all were killed. And now the Jews who remained were fearing for their life. The Babylon king would take revenge and they all escaped from the land of Israel. They went to Egypt. And the last remnant, the last spark of sovereignty the last glimmer of sovereignty in the land of Israel was completely destroyed that day. That's why it's known as Tzoyim Gedalia, the fast of Gedalia, which happens on the day of Rosh Hashanah. It's in the seventh, it's the seventh month on, on Gimel Tishrei. Rabbi Yerucham actually writes it happened on Rosh Hashanah, but we don't want to fast on Rosh Hashanah. It's a holiday, so we push over the fast, but that's a separate subject.
The same, so here we have the exact chronology of events of Jewish history from the book of Kings 25. And the same chronology is in Jeremiah 52. It was the ninth year of the reign of Tzitkiyo in the tenth month. On the 10th day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar came with his entire army to Jerusalem and they besieged it and they built towers against it all around. And he continues to go through the story. The kid city was in, was in a siege until the 11th year of Tzitkiyo, meaning for more than two years. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so powerful, there was no food for the people and that's when the walls were breached. And three weeks later, a little more than three weeks later, the temple destroyed. So here we have in two places in the Tanakh, the chronology of events. From the 10th of Tevis, all the way two and a half years later, from the ninth year of the reign of Tzedekiah, two and a half years later, the final destruction of the temple, and a few months later, the murder of Gedaliah, right afterwards in the seventh month, which again destroyed the <coughs> final presence of the Jewish people in Israel with their own sovereign leader under the jurisdiction of the Babylonian emperor, Nebuchadnezzar. That's why we fast on these four fast days. 10th of Tevis, 17th of Tammuz, 9th of Av, and the fast of Gedaliah. But now, let's take this one step further and focus on those words that are not found in Jeremiah or in Kings. They're only found in Yechezkel. You remember our first source? Ezekiel 24, Hashem tells, God tells him, mortal man, I want you to record. Go back to the first source. I want you to record this date, this exact day, this self-same day. That's what means. Because on this self-same day, on this very day, the king of Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem. Where else do we have these expressions? Abraham says it's found Yom Kippur. But let's see some other places where it's found. <coughs> let's take a look. Which means on, on, on this self-same day is not a common term in the Tanakh. It's found a few places. Where's the first time? The first time is go back to your source sheets in Noyach. Genesis chapter 7. On this very exact day, on this self-same day, again, Noyach and his three children and his wife and his three daughters-in-law come into the ark. Next, Parsha's boy. It also says about Avram, he circumcised himself on this very self-same day. In Boy, Exodus chapter 12. It was after 430 years. On this self-same day, on this exact day, all of the troops, the army of Hashem, left the land of Egypt. Then, of course, we have it on Yom Kippur. We quoted it before in Leviticus 23. No work should be done on this self-same day, on this very exact day. It's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And later the Torah says, whoever is not going to fast, on this self-same day, which is why we know that Yom Kippur, you have to fast on the very day of Yom Kippur. There's no pushing off the fast. At the end of the Torah, we have it once more. Moshe Rabbeinu is about to pass away. Parshas Hazinu, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Hashem speaks to Moshe on this very exact day. 
and he says, go up to the Mount Nevoi, and that's where you're going to pass away. Do you see a common denominator between all of these Be'etzem Ayayim It's very clear. It's extremely clear. <coughs> and I thank this insight I saw from Rabbi David, For- Rabbi, my colleague, dear friend, Rabbi David Foreman Shlita, and alphabeta.com. <coughs> and all the common denominator here is that these days represent not just an event, but a shift in history. Everything afterwards is never going to be the same. Noyach walks into the ark. When he comes out of this ark, he's not going to encounter the same world. As the Medrash says, The world that Noyach lived in was completely destroyed. He came into a whole new world, and it was not easy. So when Noyach comes in, this very day Noyach comes in, this is not just a technical description of the day he walked into the ark. This day is going to be remembered for eternity because this day represents there is a a rift in history. This day is going to be remembered as a turning point, an emergence of a new world. That's the first Batsamayamaza. What about the next one we mentioned? I spoke about Avram, circumcision, that too. But I'm not going to go through all of them. I'm going to go through most of them. Avram's circumcision was also one. He becomes, a, he becomes a new person. And his descendants for eternity who go through this covenant and now have the identity of a Jew. In Parish's boy, on this day they left Egypt. This would never be this. They would never be the same. This was a nation that were slaves and they were emancipated. They were liberated for eternity. The Maharal famously says in Gvuris Hashem chapter 41 that the liberation of Egypt was an innate transformation and metamorphosis in the very psyche of the Jew and the very psyche of the world. We don't perceive anymore the human being as essentially a slave. You're a free person. You deserve to be free. It's worshiping a free God who wanted the human being to serve him with freedom and liberty and joy. So this day, it's not just the day they left Egypt. This day represents a shift in consciousness. All revolutions in history of slaves, revolution, revolution, slaves rebelling and creating a mutiny against subjugation were inspired by this story. And this changes the fate and destiny of the world. The Jewish people are now an independent nation who would be charged in changing the landscape of planet Earth through the Torah. Yom Kippur, what about Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is all about transformation. The Jew, post-Yom Kippur, is not the person pre-Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day of metamorphosis, of renewal, of rebirth, of absolute cleansing. Something happens on this day that makes it unrecognizable from previous days. There's an interesting law that uh, there was four garments that the high priest wore on Yom Kippur, and he could never use them the next Yom Kippur. Once they were used once, they had to be hidden forever. He couldn't use them again, why not? And one of the explanations is because Yom Kippur is all about newness. It's that today there's a newness. We spoke last week about Atta, Ein Va'ata, Lalash and Shuva. There's the concept of now. The last one here is Dvarim. Moshe goes up to the mountain and Jewish history will never be the same. That presence of Moses in the Jewish world changed everything because this was the man who took them out of Egypt, the man who was the greatest prophet who ever lived, the human being who received the Torah from Hashem over 40 years in Sinai in the desert. And he taught it to the Jewish people. He's the one who gave them the tablets, came down with the Ten Commandments. Moshe Rabbeinu was the quintessential ambassador, messenger of Hashem, the greatest prophet. 
Yes, Jewish history would continue and Moshe Rabbeinu would inspire us forever. But that day changed everything. Ultimately, they would now be students of Joshua, they would be students of other great people. But that connection with Moshe, having the presence of Moshe, what he represented, it was not part of history anymore. So we see this common theme in Be'etzim and now we'll understand the Etzim of the 10th day of Tevis, of Asari B'Tevis. Now we'll understand the power of it, the significance of it, why this word is used and why the Avudraham says this is similar to Yom Kippur. <coughs> we can now see the connection. Why? We asked in the beginning, why was it even established as a fast day? Why is it compared to the other catastrophes when at this moment nothing really happened? But we could now see the pattern. When we read about the siege of Jerusalem in Jeremiah 52, the last chapter of Yirmiya, or in Malachim Beis Chafet, Kings 2.25, we understand that it's not just the day when the Babylonian troops happened to surround Jerusalem and build towers. It was the first domino to fall in a string of events that includes all of the other three fast days because the siege is laid. The walls were not yet breached, but the walls will be breached. The temple will be destroyed. Gedalia will be assassinated. It all happens in this chapter in Tanakh, but it begins, it begins with the 10th day of Tevis. That's a Be'etzem Hayoim Hazem moment, because when the Babylonians lay siege upon Jerusalem, they didn't do anything yet. They didn't shoot arrows, they didn't kill anybody, the Jews still have food, but the tide begins to turn from redemption to exile. This is the beginning, it's not the end, but it's the beginning, and that is extremely significant, because very often in life, we wait till the catastrophe happens till the disaster unfolds in its full drama and with its full consequences. God is telling Yechezkel, don't look at it that way. You have to have vision to be able to identify not just the end, but the beginning of the end. Not just when the sun set completely and it's all dark, but when the sun is beginning to set. In our own lives, we have to be able to identify those cracks in the wall that are not dramatic. But if they're not taken care of now, they can, heaven forbid, lead to destruction. It's true regarding our physical health. It's true regarding our emotional, psychological, and mental health. It's true about our marriages, about our relationships, about our families. It's true about our communities. You know, sometimes there's cracks in the beginning. Nothing is happening. No arrows were shot. Nobody was taken captive. The Babylonians are just surrounding the city. They're laying siege. It's still going to be two and a half years till anything significant happens. But this is the day that God says, this is the Be'etzim Hayoim Hazem moment. Because in the first day, the first temple, even though Jews sinned and Jews were entrenched in idolatry and all other problems, nonetheless, Judaism was in its full pride and glory. It was an age of miracles. It was an age of prophecies. Jerusalem was the apple of God's eye. You had the greatest prophets living among us. It was a spiritual age of unprecedented vibrancy and there were still the items that represented the direct link to Moses and to the exodus of Egypt. So the people had been warned time and time again, but can anybody imagine that God would really abandon them, that God would destroy his own palace? And Asar Abetavis was that Be'etzim Ayayim even though this is not the day when the ultimate catastrophe happened, but it's the shift happens. When those chariots, when those troops of the Babylonian emperor 
approach. Those blasts of trumpets calling for war. In the distance, the Jewish people can see the Babylonians approaching, preparing to lay the city of God under siege, which will continue two and a half years. What happens is everything begins to unravel at that moment. Everything is transformed. That which we thought incomprehensible and unfathomable begins to take place. If you talk about the Holocaust, you know, there was the, there was the ultimate devastation and the catastrophe and the gas chambers and the deep, deep deportations and the shootings, the Eisen's, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the mass shootings in, in the East, etc. But there was the beginning, the genesis of it, what's called Aschalta de Puranissa, the beginning. In the beginning, we dismiss things. We dismiss it on a global level. We also dismiss it in our personal lives. You know, we'll get it together. But Hashem tells him, this is the day, this is the day. It's like when Noyach went into the Teva. Everything is going to change. At sunrise, they were in the lap of God's presence. At nightfall, they were ostensibly in the palm of the enemy, not knowing what the next morning would bring. That's why this is the day that's considered the beginning of everything, the beginning of the first exile, which even after the return, still is not nullified completely. It's the beginning of the second exile. And it's considered the beginning of the long exile of the Jewish people. Why? Because it's the day that it all began. The walls were not breached yet, but the first cracks could be seen. That's why the Avodraham says it has the stringency of Yom Kippur. And I should add that even today, when Asar Batevis falls out on Friday, some say that you don't complete the fast till Shabbos because you don't want to go into Shabbos starving. And yet the custom in, in I think, most Jewish communities is based on the other opinion, that even when Asar Batevis is on Friday, we actually complete the fast. We come into Shabbos hungry. We only eat after Kiddush, Friday night, after nightfall when the fast is over. That's fascinating. So even today, when Asar Batevis is not on Shabbos, we still have a, a, a reflection of its power, of its, of its stringency, that it actually goes in all the way into Shabbos. On Friday, we fast all the way till Friday night when we're allowed to have the Shabbos meal when the fast is over. Let's now take this one step further, the final step. <coughs> there is a unique word that Yecheskel uses a unique word in that first source. It's not used in Jeremiah, it's not used in Kings, but it's used in Yecheskel. When God tells him to record the prophecy, he says, Ben Adam, Samach Melech What does Samach Melech Bavl mean? Samach, from the word Samuch, close, means he laid siege to Jerusalem. Samach means he came close to the wall. He came close to Jerusalem. Samach. But it's interesting, if you look in the previous sources, in Jeremiah and Malachim, that's not the term used. The term that's used is, <laughs> Matzar is from the word Mitzrayim. They put the city in distress, in a siege. Another word that's used is, He dwells near the city. But here in Yecheskel, he uses the word, Sabach. 
And now it's interesting because the word samach, even though here it means lay siege, but what does it usually mean in Tanakh? We say in Ashrei, Soimei Hashem lechol hanoiflam. God supports all those who fall. Smicha means I lean on you. It's a form of supporting you, holding on to you, or you holding on to me. So Soimei Hashem lechol hanoiflam means God is close to all those who fall. He catches them. He holds on to them. He supports them. He sustains them. Here, obviously, doesn't mean that. The king of Babylonia was not supporting Jerusalem. He was putting a siege on Jerusalem in order to destroy it. But that's the word that's used. He could have used another word in the prophets. He uses the word samach. And that's not a coincidence. And this insight I heard myself quite a few years ago from the Lubavitcher Rebbe on the 10th day of Tevis at a fast day. And he said something so beautiful and so encouraging. He said, God wanted to tell you, Cheskel, you have to know how to view Jewish history. Jewish history is not just a story of redemption followed by exile. It's a story of redemption followed by exile, followed by redemption. When the Jewish people were exiled from Jerusalem, when the temple wasn't destroyed, was destroyed, the objective was not, God forbid, destruction. The objective was recreating a deeper relationship that will result in Geula, that will result in redemption. It's been many years, but the journey continues. And the truth is, think about it, it's really inspiring. Because when did these events happen? These events, very sad events, happened when? You're dealing with 2,500 years have passed since these events. I told you, this happened in the year, the destruction was in the year 3338. 3,338 since creation. It's very easy to remember. Gimel, Shalach, Shilach. It's the day that God sent away the Jewish people. Sent them away from the Jerusalem. Gimel, Shalach, 3338. We're now 5782. So you're dealing with two, two and a half millennia later, approximately. The secular calendar gets a little confusing because it's 586 BCE and they're not completely synchronized. Seems like to be a 150 year gap, but that's a separate discussion. Famous article for Arab Shimon Schwab and others in the world of Jewish history to try to reconcile the dates, but it's beyond this realm of our, of our class today. When exactly we identify the year of the destruction of the first temple. But you're talking about two and a half millennia. How old is the United States of America? They once asked a Chinese politician what he thinks of the Chinese Revolution and the American Revolution. And he said, I'm sorry, they asked a Chinese politician what he thinks of the French Revolution and the American Revolution. And he said, it's too early to tell. (laughs) You know, babies, babies, a few hundred years. So 2,500 years later, we are fasting we're commemorating the pain of our brothers and sisters living in the city of God two and a half millennia ago. Nothing about the world then and the world today is similar. Everything has changed. In fact, the world has changed in the last hundred years, probably more than it was changed in a few thousand years. But nonetheless, these memories are fresh. We're fasting. We're praying. We're giving extra tzedakah today. We're learning more Torah. We're getting closer to each other. We're spiritually growing. We're preparing for redemption. Two and a half millennia later. Because by the Jews, they always understood exile is not the ultimate objective. Destruction is never the ultimate objective. It's always a catalyst for introspection, for tshuva, for renewal, for a deeper relationship, for changing the world. It's a process just like in our own life when we go through processes of pain and disintegration and our old house, our old edifice, our old structures fall apart. It's never just to fall apart. It's in order to be able to build structures that are authentic, eternal, divine. Let's take a look in the final words of the Rambam. This is how Maimonides, who lived in the 12th century, 
finishes the laws of fast days. Rambam Saif Tainius. Call the last source. Call out All these fast days, Asidim Libatum Lamaisa Mashiach, will be obliterated when Mashiach comes. Furthermore, Lashem Asidim Lios They're going to be transformed into holidays, into days of festivity and gaiety and jubilance and joy. Shanemar, as the prophet Zechariah says, Koyamar Hashem Tzvayah, so did God say, Tzayma Reviv, Tzayma Chameshi, Tzayma Shviv, Tzayma Asiri, Iyilabes Yehudel, Asasin, Asimcha, Lamaadim, Taivim, Ve'emez, Vashalom, Ahevim. The fast day of the fourth month, Tamos, the fast day of the fifth month, of, the fast day of the tenth month, of the seventh month, Tishrei, the fast day of the tenth month, Tavis, for the house of Yehuda are going to become days of festivity, days of joy, days of great Moments of holidays, but just love, truth, and love, peace. This is what the prophet says. Now I can understand why the fast days will be obliterated when the temple will be rebuilt and Jerusalem will be the center of, 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 of the Jewish, the, cap, the eternal capital of the Jewish people and Jerusalem will return to its full glory physically and spiritually. So why should we fast? <laughs> why should we fast? The tragedy is over. I got it. But why? The Rambam says, not only is it going to be nullified, there's something else, it's going to be transformed. Why is it going to be transformed? Tragedy is over, so we don't have to fast. Why is it greater than, why is it better than another day? Tisha B'Av becomes a holiday. The day before and after is not going to be a holiday. Asar B'Tavis, Yud Aleph Tavis, and Tes Tavis, and Allah, the 10th of Tavis is going to become a holiday. On one level, it's because when you get rid of a day that was a bad day and a difficult day, and the issue is gone, so you celebrate it. Because the fact is that the challenge has been removed, but there's something even deeper. And that is the ultimate objective of every fast day, the ultimate objective of every challenge in life is to work through something else and to create a deeper connection in your life. In Judaism, there's no darkness for the sake of darkness, fasting for the sake of fasting, disintegration for the sake of disintegration. It's always a call for a deeper awareness, a deeper renewal. We don't always understand why and why I have to go through these journeys, but every single journey, like an eagle, it says by Yaakov, he saw the agalos that Yosef sent. So the Shem Yishmol says the agalos comes from the word eagle. He saw the circles. What Yosef taught him is that life is a circle. Sometimes you're going down in a circle, but you're not really going down, you're just on your way up. Sometimes the circle expands very wide, but you're not leaving anything. You're a part of a, it's part of a part of a unified journey in a person's life. You never fall into despair. So what happens is that the fast day itself becomes a day of joy, similar to what we spoke last week. The Talmud says that when you do tshuva out of love, the sins become mitzvahs. It's not just you go away from the sins. No, not just you nullify the sins. It's not even just that you do more mitzvahs because you feel remorse. It's much deeper. The Talmud says in Yuma, page 86, the sins themselves become mitzvahs. In other words, the very mistakes that I made are revealed to become springboards of awareness. When I work them through, they become my most powerful element in my growth, in my feature of growth. But I have to be able to work it through. So the fast days which are here to awake us to tshuva as the Rambam opens up the fifth chapter of Hilchas Tainius. Its ultimate purpose is the transformation of the negativity. So therefore the fast day itself becomes what? Becomes a festive day. And here we'll understand the secret of Samach. 
Samach means Melech Bavel, the Babylonian king, supported Jerusalem, but he didn't. So Rebbe said something very interesting. In reality, physically, he didn't. But when God records the prophecy to Yechezkel, he says, I want you to remember there's an element of Samach here. Because when the Jewish people were surrounded by an army, and they couldn't leave, and they couldn't go in, its purpose was to remind them that we are one. And in this shipwreck, we are going to have to stick together. We cannot afford the rifts that have been so catastrophic in Jewish history. We cannot afford the divisiveness and the animosity that has split us apart. We have to be together. I once heard from the former chief rabbi of Israel, by Israel Yisrael Meir Lau, the former chief rabbi Shlita. He said this at the 75th anniversary of the, of the Auschwitz liberation. Auschwitz was liberated January 27th, 1945, 75 years later, right before Corona, there was a big event in Jerusalem. And he said, how is it that all of the animals behaved in Noah's Ark so nicely for a full year? Why is there no record of the lioness devouring the gazelle or the cheetah devouring the goat? The tiger devouring the dog. Why? What happened? How were they all so peaceful? And he says they realized that if they can't get along in here, they'll all be liquidated and destroyed because out there there's a raging flood. And he turned to all the leaders of the nations. He said, there's so many floods out there. There's so many dangers out there. We are here on this little planet. If we can't learn to get along here, all of our futures are compromised. When the Jewish people were surrounded by the Babylonian troops, it was a divine message. You are one. You are a united nation. We have to work out our issues together. We may have differences of opinions. This is what we've been exploring in the last classes of Ayigash, Vayichi, the conflicts between the tribes, Yehuda and Yosef, the 12 rocks. Yes, we are different. We have differences of opinions. But the message here was, you are now stuck here. Learn to figure it out together because out there you can't go if you don't learn to work things out right here. We will all be destroyed. This was a divine message. Chevre, wake up. Tune into the reality. Go into a deeper place. It's time for real transformation and for real unity and for real new consciousness. Sadly, it was not heeded. And ultimately, two and a half years later, the worlds were, bre- worlds were breached. But that's why when God records this prophecy, he records it in a, with a unique word, samach, which means both he laid siege and also means he supported it. Because from a deeper divine perspective, this crisis was also an invitation for a deeper awareness. When a family falls apart, when you start finding cracks in your own marriage, it's an invitation for renewal, for becoming a more real person, a stronger person, a more honest person, a more authentic person. I can't run away from it anymore. When the upheavals become so blatant, I can't ignore it, I can't repress it, I have to confront it. And when I confront it, I can transform it. But if I don't confront it, I can't transform it. So the Samach Melech Bavel has a dual meaning. In Jeremiah and Kings over there, the story is recorded the way it happened. The way it happened, it was just a siege, a devastating siege, which was the beginning of a domino effect that would ultimately result in devastation and decimation and the burning of the temple. But when Hashem tells Ezekiel the prophecy, he includes also that higher transcendent message that there's ultimately a deeper opportunity here for renewal, and that's the whole purpose of exile. 
What exile did to the Jewish people is it brought out and consolidated a relationship with ourselves and with the divine and with the world that was unprecedented because when the Jewish people are living in Israel and they're living in a time of miracles and they're living in God's palace and they're living in God's city and they're living with prophets, the relationship then could also be superficial. But what happens in exile is the relationship becomes the deepest relationship. Because it's just like in our personal life, you know, sometimes when you feel alienated and when you feel dejected and when you feel like you're in the abyss, that's when you have to discover who you really, really are. That's when you have to fight for yourself. You have to fight for your light. And the Jewish people discovered and fought for their light. And their relationship with God becomes a much more essential and deeper relationship that nothing could destroy. And our relationship with each other becomes even stronger that even when we were exiled, we're not living in the same country anymore. Jews living from Australia from, to Moscow, to London, to Paris, to Los Angeles, to New York. And yet we're all connected. But how are we connected? We're not in one land. Because the exile brought out a deeper relationship that transcends time and space. We're not even in one land, but we remained one nation. Because a deeper bond emerged through exile as a preparation for the ultimate redemption, when there will be the ultimate unity spiritually and physically. And that's the deeper reason why Asara Batavis is compared to Yom Kippur. What is Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur is the day of tshuva, ultimate transformation. Yom Kippur is the day when all of our sins become mitzvahs. Yom Kippur is the day of metamorphosis, the day of renewal, the day. The Talmud says, Itzumai shal the very day creates atonement. That's what Rebbe holds, Shavuos, page 13. And even the halacha, that you have to do tshuva, you can't just rely on the day, but the very day creates a different type of tshuva. as the Rambam puts it. What's the power of the day? Because on Yom Kippur, we gave a shir on Yom Kippur, if you remember, on Yom Kippur, the fifth level of the relationship emerges. There's nefesh, ruach, neshama, chayi, there's different levels of the relationship on Yom Kippur. The core essence emerges, and in that level, there was no alienation, there was no sin. So the very day atones because it demonstrates that there's a level of a relationship where there's complete kinship and intimacy and oneness that nothing can break, even sin can break. It's even when you think that you're alienated and you're estranged and you're a lost case, Yom Kippur says at your core you're divine, you're wholesome, you're a glorious piece of infinite art. That's what Yom Kippur reveals. And that's the real essence of Asari Batavis. On one level, the 10th of Tevis is the beginning of catastrophe. It's the beginning of the end as we explained before. But in Judaism, every disintegration is a call for renovation. Every demolition is essentially the beginning of transformation and rebuilding and renovation. So the beginning of the catastrophe is really the beginning of the redemption. So it's like Yom Kippur. It's the day of ultimate truth, of ultimate transformation. And just like Yom Kippur is deeper than Shabbos. Because this relationship even goes deeper than all the mitzvahs. It's an essential relationship. The 10th of Tevis is going to be transformed in the greatest holiday, into the greatest holiday, because it captures the essence of the relationship that is like Yom Kippur, that is going to be revealed through this whole domino effect of exile, and despite the pain of it on a physical level, on a deeper level, what the Jewish people did with this was, they used it as springboards for extraordinary renewal and transformation to the point that they discovered their own etzep, their own essence, which is never ever disconnected, and it comes out even stronger. Until, therefore, the great moment, as Maimonides says, when all the fast days, including and especially the 10th of Tevis, which is like Yom Kippur, the very fast days become transformed into great holidays because that represents what they really are all about. An invitation to be able to go in to a much deeper relationship that could never be obliterated. 
and to work through even the mistakes and the sins and the errors and realize that each and every single one of them was an opportunity for a new type of growth and a new type of awareness and a new type of transformation. And as he finishes the last words, but remember, love and cherish, truth and peace. May we experience that speedily in our days in this very Asara B'Tevis, this very 10th of Tevis. Thank you very much. Take a few questions if there are. Why is this fast the shortest fast from sunrise till sundown? Yom Kippur is 24, 25 hours. True, it's short in terms of quantity of time. It's a winter day and sunset is pretty early. So it's a short fast. But here we're talking about not the physical length of the fast in terms of quantity, but what it commemorates. Why didn't Yecheskel use the word by the other fasts? Only by this fast. They were also major moments of destruction, especially Tishabov. Well, that's really the whole point that we're making. The point that we're making is that there was something about this day that changed everything. In other words, Tishabov. Tzom Gedalia, Shiva Asabatamos were natural or natural or not natural, but consequences of this day. The devastation happened those days. That's when the death and the murder and the burning. But Asar Batavis is the beginning of it. From now, what does somebody once say? It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. Asar Batavis begins that process that will change life for the Jewish people of that era forever and will change Jewish history forever until this very day because all the exiles are ultimately connected to each other the sense of alienation and subjugation and the suffering and the pain it all begins that's its power in the negative that's why it's more powerful than Shabbos on the other hand because it has this element this profound negativity to it what does it really mean? that hidden inside of it, it has the most profound positive, positive energy. Because every descent is for the sake of an ascent. And if it's a lower descent, it's for the sake of a deeper ascent. So on another level, if there's so much negative potential embedded in this day, you have to ask yourself, how much positive potential is embedded in this day? If this day is a day that unraveled everything and ultimately... It, it was revealed to be the etzim that changed Jewish history in the negative sense. This means that in its ultimate purpose and objective, here you have the ultimate positivity. That's why it's compared to Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the year of positivity. That's the connection. So this is a very powerful day. First of all, it's a day when we feel the connection with Jewish history. You know, sometimes people get upset. Why do I have to fast? Yeah, I also don't like fasting. It's not fun. Fun to fast. Some people don't mind, but some for some people it's hard to fast. But look at I just want you to focus on one thing, the connection of, of generations. You know, I know my grandfather's name, I know my great grandfather's name, I don't know my great great grandfather's name, I don't know my great great grandmother's name. I carry their genes, you carry their genes. But what do we know? We know the last fifty years, we know the last hundred years, we can read about hundred and fifty years. But with these fast days, we don't just know from 50 years ago, Jewish past is alive. Yecheskel is alive, and Yermia is alive, and Yerushalayim is alive, and the Beis HaMikdash is alive, and the memories of destruction are alive. We are part of an ongoing story. That itself 
is so powerful and glorious. Something happened to this people. We, after all these events, we should have not been here any longer. We should have been gone, wiped off the map, reduced to the dustbin of history in Mark Twain's words. That would have been normal. Just each event on its own was enough to finish us off. And then the second temple disaster. Oh my God. And then the Bar Kaichva revolt after that. Remember, this all repeats itself with the second temple a few hundred years later. But we're here not just to tell the story, to relive the story. And to hope every day to come back. And to witness in our days close to 7 million Jews living in the Holy Land. In Jerusalem, in the Holy Land. These are extraordinary miracles. Until the great miracle we're waiting for, which is the ultimate gula, the ultimate redemption, when all the Jewish people will be reunited back in our Holy Land. And the Third Temple will be rebuilt with Mashiach. And Jerusalem will be rebuilt, not just physically, but also as the spiritual epicenter of the world in the most manifested way. So the very commemoration of these fast days, as the Rambam says, shows the, the vision of the Jewish people as God's people to understand that life and history is a journey from exile to redemption, from multiplicity to oneness, from fragmentation to cohesion, from divisiveness to ultimate achdus, to ultimate unity. Okay, very good questions. Let me see if there's any other questions. Question, are you saying that we wouldn't be able to experience Geula if we as a people didn't go through these experiences? Yeah. It's, it's important to qualify that the experience of Golos was and is so difficult and so painful and what people and our people have gone through is beyond comprehension. So we don't really understand and comprehend why everything had to happen in our history. What we do know is, as the Navi says, the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 11, that on that day, we're going to say, Hashem Thank you, Hashem. Thank you, Hashem, ki anaftabi. Anaftabi means you have been upset at me or angry at me. You have provoked me. What are we going to thank Him for? That's why we really don't understand the depth of Gula. When we think about Mashiach, we think, okay, it's going to be a beautiful world. No tuition crisis, no shidduch crisis, no mental health crisis. There'll be peace. There'll be health, which is amazing, incredible. But can that justify 2,000 years of such profound suffering, what can justify it? Can having a beautiful messianic world justify the 6 million and even one community of the 6 million and even one? And of course the answer is no. This means that we don't really understand the depth of the light that's going to emerge when Mashiach comes. That when we look at it, we're going to say, aha, now I see what Gullus accomplished. That's how incomprehensible the majestic infinite greatness of Gula is. But what we do know is that every step of Gaulus, of disintegration, is a preparation for a deeper relationship through Gula. And it's true in our personal lives, as we often talk about, you know. We go through experiences, our own exiles. We are subjugated. We go through different experiences in our psyche. Never ever think that it's here to destroy you. It's here to hold you down, to crush you. No, no. This is going to be your opportunity to be able to dig deeper into yourself in order to heal. And then your real light is going to shine and brighten up the world. I didn't realize, question, I didn't realize that from the siege 
until the actual breach took two and a half years. I thought it was the same year. Are you sure? Yes, it's clear. It says the, the siege was the ninth year of Tzedekiah's reign, and the breaching of the wall was in his eleventh year. And one was in Tavis, one was in Tammuz. So it's exactly two and a half years. The tenth of Tavis, two years later, and then count Shvat, Adar, Nisan, Iyer, Sivan, Tammuz. Six months later, two years and six months later, that's when the walls of Jerusalem were breached. And three weeks later, the temple was destroyed. That's why we have these fast days. So the first fast day, chronologically, is the 10th of Tevis, because that's when the siege began. And then the second fast day is the 17th of Tammuz, and then the third is the 9th of Av, and then the fourth is Tzayim Gedalia, chronologically, even though in the system of the years, if you start with Nisan, the first is Tammuz, and if you start with Tishrei, the first is Tzayim Gedalia. Everybody have a wonderful week and we experience in our times and in our very day, the powerful revelation of Yom Kippur, the powerful revelation of Tshuva, the powerful revelation of transformation when every fast day will become the greatest moment of celebration. There's a medrash that says, The real simcha is going to be Tisha Why? It's going to be a good day. We're not going to fast because when the negative is transformed, when the darkness is transformed into light, it's the deepest type of light. There's light that's generated through light, but when you take negative energy and you channel it into a force for positive energy, there's no positive energy like that. It's true. Look, look at it in your own life. Anything in your life that is negative, anything in your life that's surrounding you, closing in on you, let's make this practical. You know, you feel like you're behind walls, and but somebody's closing in on these walls. And these walls are getting tighter and tighter every day. And the resources of Jerusalem are being depleted. Your resources are being depleted. And it's very, very hard. It's tough. But never, ever allow yourself to imagine that this is the end. That this is here to destroy you. Khalila, heaven forbid. Rather, it's a time to go deeper into myself. And deeper into my relationships with myself, with my soul, with my friends, with my family, with my God. As the king of Babylon was besieging the walls of Jerusalem, on a deeper spiritual level, God was reminding us, ultimately, I want to to support you. Jerusalem needs to be supported. It needs to be elevated to a greater level. May we experience that revelation very speedily in our days. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.